the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's program, the killing of Francis Murphy, one of the youngest victims of the War of Independence. We'll ask who was responsible for his murder. Plus, how comic books caused a moral panic in 1950s Ireland. That the so-called comics, which are being imported into this country in tens of thousands, are responsible to a certain extent for the high incidence of juvenile crime is an opinion that is fast gaining ground here. We'll hear about the short-lived comic The Leprechaun, produced as part of a campaign to protect Irish children from foreign influences. It's 12 pages. It's got quite a lot of colour in it for the time. Most comics at the time would have been black and white. The Leprechaun title across the top. And it's obviously in green because, you know, you're, you're trying to hit the whole market. Also, Harry Clark's Geneva Window. Clark came back and said, OK, we'll do Window. We'll look at 15 Irish writers and we'll illustrate their work through an intricate panelled stained glass window. The story of one of the Dublin-born artist's greatest works and its unlikely journey across the Atlantic to a museum in Florida. On the night of the 14th of August 1919, a 15-year-old Fianna Aaron member named Francis Murphy from Glan, near Ennistymon in County Clare, was shot and killed while sitting in his own home. He was one of the youngest victims to be killed during the War of Independence period. And up until very recently, he was assumed to have been a victim of the Crown Forces. However, new evidence uncovered by my next guests suggests that this was in fact the fatal result of a local agrarian dispute. My next guests have researched this unusual and complex case. I'm joined on the line by Michael Vaughan, a relative of Francis Murphy, and by historian Dr. Porig O'Gorourke, who has extensively researched the War of Independence in County Clare. You're both very welcome indeed. Porig, first of all, tell us about the case. Who was Francis Murphy and what happened to him exactly on the 14th of August 1919? So Francis Murphy was from Glan, uh, a small townland uh, just outside of Ennistymon in northwest Clare. He was the son of John Murphy, a member of the Ennistymon Board of Guardians. And the Royal Irish Constabulary described John Murphy as being a decent law-abiding family man whose family were ardent Sinn Féiners and were very advanced Sinn Féiners. So they would have been a Catholic family at the time of the War of Independence. John Murphy himself would have been, you know, a very respectable person. His family, I suppose, were becoming involved in fairly low-level Republican activity. His daughter, Bridget, was nicknamed the Countess in Ennestimon because she was a very ardent uh, Sinn Féiner. And two of his sons, Francis and Andrew, who were twin brothers, joined the branch of Nafina Aaron, the Irish National Boy Scouts in Ennestimon. Now, that wouldn't have been too unusual. There would have been no Baden-Powell Boy Scouts in the area and Baden-Powell Scouts would have been seen as being, you know, marginally pro-British and the Fianna Aaron Scouts would have been seen as being kind of a junior wing of the IRA or or pro-Republican. And the family, I suppose, the killing of Francis Murphy, uh, he would have been the youngest fatality of the War of Independence in County Clare. He was 15 years old when he was killed. But the question is, was he killed as a result of that conflict? Uh, To give some background on it, the Murphy family, John Murphy's brother, had married into the family of Michael Nalen, who was uh, Michael Nalen had himself married a woman named Mary McGann. She had inherited a farm at Cahar Blanick, and that was considered a contested farm. 
because John Murphy had helped out with harvesting and agricultural work, that brought the family into some controversy because of the, the circumstances of the farm and how it was inherited and how it was, you know, came into the Nayland family's hands through marriage. Also around the same time, you have the shooting of uh, two RIC members in an IRA ambush known as the 81 Cross Ambush. That happened on the 4th of August 1919, so 10 days before Francis Murphy is shot. And the question has always been, was the killing of Francis Murphy a reprisal by the British Crown Forces for the 81 Cross Ambush, or was it related to the agrarian difficulties and feud that the family were involved in. And traditionally, the argument, uh, the popular narrative was always that it was a a British uh, reprisal. Talk to me a little bit also about the inquest, because at the inquest, uh, a very interesting character comes forward, a man called Canole, and he is quite emphatic that this was carried out by the British Army. Yeah, so Patrick Canole, also known as Pete Canole, is a worker on the uh, on the West Clare uh, Railway. And he says that at the time of the shooting that he had, uh, and the shooting, I should say, occurs when Francis Murphy is is alone in the uh, by the fireplace in his home. He has a lantern on, he's reading, and a shot or a number of shots come through the window, one of which uh, fatally kills him. And uh, Patrick or Pete Canole says that he happens to be, because he's a railway man, out early, he's walking through the, the by the area and he meets a number of men who stop him. He says they're dressed in British Army style, you know, grey shirts and they have British Army khaki caps on them and that basically they, they threaten him to uh, to say nothing. When the county coroner opens the inquest, it actually happens the day after the shooting. So it happens very quickly and you wonder how much time they had to gather evidence. And the key piece of of evidence at the inquest really is that the the bullet which killed Francis Murphy is said to be a a military pattern bullet, i.e. that it comes from the British Army. But of course, you would have had a lot of ex-soldiers coming back from the war, uh, a lot of IRA men buying guns from British soldiers. There was a fairly healthy black market in in arms at the time. And this um, comprised with Patrick Canole's evidence gives the indication that the British are responsible. However, several months later, uh, Canole retracts his evidence and says that he has uh, he's actually sentenced to a number of months in Wormwood Scrubs for perjury. And it turns out that Patrick Canole is in dispute with his uh, employer on the, the West Clare Railway. And that he has been told by a number of local men that if he gives evidence saying that the British Army were responsible for the shooting and that he met them out, that they would help him, uh, Canole, to murder his employer, solving that dispute as well. So, Michael, Michael Vaughan, what's your family connection to this case? Well, I would be a grandnephew of, of Francie, Francie Murphy. Um, and, and Andrew, his, his twin brother, was my godfather. So my grandmother, it was mentioned there by Porrick, um, Breeze Murphy, she was very, very prominent in coming on, as was her sister May um, at the time. And uh, subsequently, in fact, in our own family, uh, our, our premises in the Hinch was subsequently burnt down by the Black and Tans uh, the following year after the Renine ambush. So, so there, there, was, there was a very healthy Republican activity in, in the family over the years. And in your family, what was the accepted wisdom about the killing of Francis Murphy? 
Oh, it was it was always and ever uh, stated that that Francie was killed uh, from the automatic fire from a submachine gun on an army tender that had, was passing the road. It it was the habit of of the army to patrol the the road, and they had they had a, a well trodden path up along North Clare up as far as Ballyvaughan, and they would have passed that house after midnight, maybe between midnight and one a.m. and a number of nights during the week. So so it was accepted generally that it, that it must have been that, and of course. Various accounts. Um, in May, Mary Murphy, um, wife of, of Johnny Murphy, Mary would have said that it could have been nobody else but the army. But it, it was always very contentious because, you see, they were, they were, there was about 2,000 people attended Francie's funeral and Sinn Féin um, produced a commemorative badge uh, in his honour uh, which was worn widely in the area for quite a while, but but um, that waned, of course, afterwards. But they, and as Porik said, the inquest was very hastily organised, and uh, and the crown forces weren't weren't given the opportunity really to produce uh, witnesses. There there seemed to be a breakdown in communication, and the officer uh, charged with with representing the, the the crown at the court couldn't give assurances that the military that the military would fully defend their case, uh, which seems very odd. And also the house, I think, was pretty well known locally as a safe house, which means that presumably the Crown Forces would have been aware that it was a safe house. So that makes that particular narrative all the more plausible, that, uh, you know, a patrol firing into the house, you never know, they might get lucky, they might kill a few IRA men. Yes, and of course, you see, I mean, if you look at it, there, there were a few instances in, in, uh, in County Clare with regard to curfew and, and lights uh, being visible from houses. And there was a warning, and I think there was an arrest made in, in Ina on a house where people had light late at night. Uh, of course, in this instance, Francie was a smoker and uh, he was only 15 years of age and, and he came down to the kitchen for a, a smoke and he was reading by, by the fireside when the attack happened. So that would have been unusual in itself because um, he, he wasn't normally there. But his brother, uh, his brother was out on the town in Lahinch and returned and um, he hadn't noticed anything on the way home. So overall, you know, there was huge support for the Murphy family uh, in, in the locality and they were well known. And I, I would have said that, that it suited popular opinion, certainly, that the, that the narrative be that, that he was shot by the, the British forces because the whole family would have, would have been really of that belief. And when did you yourself begin to doubt that narrative? Well, we, we never had, a, as I was growing up, it was never something that was mentioned. The windows where, in the house where, where the bullets entered, the panes of glass remained with those uh, holes in them, although they had put another pane over them. But, and when we ever asked as young lads in the house, you know, what was the story of Francie? They said, they would have said, we don't talk about that. Um, my grand-aunt was a bit more forthcoming, but she was quite effusive and said that it was the British that had murdered her. My, my own father never spoke, but um, my brother did have some drinks with my, with my father uh, later on in his years where he mentioned that Francie's brother, Andrew, had been in the county hospital in Ennis uh, recuperating and some people were visiting a patient in the bed next to him and it turned out they were from Corafin. And as they were leaving, they had asked the, the person they were visiting who was in the bed next to him. And he said, oh, that's Murphy from Glan. And one of them approached Andrew and uh, is reported to have said to him that uh, we're very sorry for what we've done, that, that it should never have happened. It was, it was wrong. What we did was wrong. So that, that sparked a bit of, a, of an inquiry in, in my mind. And then further on, uh, a researcher in NUI Galway had been in queue in the military archives in, in London 
and had said to me that there was a very complete file on Francis Murphy there. He hadn't read it. So I made it my business to go to Kew and look at the file and I went over there and what I read certainly upended what I had thought of for many, many years. What did you find in that file? I found a very extensive file and the researcher in Galway had said to me that... that um, it was unusual to find such a complete file. Uh, really what was there was a, a flurry of, of telegrams between um, the military um, after the effect of the murder. And the, a notice had appeared outlining the outcome of the inquest in the London Times. And that caused consternation within the, in the Phoenix Park. And they immediately dispatched people, various people, to, to go and examine. And a military court, a military inquiry was set up and it seemed to have exhaustive investigations into the movement of troops, the movement of demobilised troops in, in, in County Clare, a pattern of, of the travel of the patrols from Ennis up along, up along the west coast of Clare and where they stopped and witnesses on the night and, and what time they would have stopped, what munition was in the, the armoured carrier and... Evidence from various ballistic um, authorities within the within the army. One in particular who was with the Welsh Fusiliers, who maintained that much of the ammunition was 303 rifle ammunition, and there was uh, evidence of some small firearms being fired in the house as well, but no evidence whatsoever of of machine gun fire. And it was estimated that about three different guns were used. And then further investigation uh, showed that there had been raids at various points in County Clare, in, over in Corrafin and other parts where um, army munitions were stolen and rifles taken. So basically purporting that, that there was a, an abundance of, of munitions in the area. And furthermore, the evidence of canole was kind of discounted in the sense because my aunt gave uh, Una gave a, gave a, a testament that she didn't see any any uh, headgear on the three people who were stopped by the wall of the house, and that they were wearing light coloured tops with uh, straps on the shoulder and uh, darker trousers. But it was reported in the military files that um, that Sinn Féin had had trooped colours on a couple of occasions. One at Carrigaholt when Countess Markovic came to Carrigaholt, and they wore garb of a similar nature. So that was unusual. And, and indeed, a postman who has since died um, uh, from the area, PJ O'Loughlin, had said to me that Canole, when he was leaving the house to be examined and, and uh, cross-examined by, by the military, uh, was told in the, in the vernacular, Convad do Dutha Awakin. So basically there was, in my mind, a question there. Mm. And then when I saw you know, that, and it wasn't mentioned in the family that, that Johnny's brother had been married into Carablanic. Um, and apparently there had been uh, scenes down there where uh, a rifle had been discharged on the farm and uh, Naden himself had been assaulted but refused to make anything of the assault. So in subsequent reports, um, Naden, he made a claim on the British Army for non-payment of, of, uh, for goods supplied uh, over that time, uh, apparently he supplied vegetables and other produce to the RIC. So quite, quite literally, there were many reasons why he might, he might have been a target. Porrick, give me some of the arguments against this being a reprisal killing, in specifically, I suppose, for two RIC men who had been murdered by the IRA 10 days beforehand. 
Well, I suppose the first thing we should say is just to emphasize, as, as Michael did there, that, you know, guns were being used as part of this this feud over the farm in Caterblonic involving the Nalen and by association, the Murphy families. And this had been going on since 1913, so well before the War of Independence formally begins. Shots are being fired into houses. On one occasion, a neighbour who helps out the, the family that are being boycotted, his horse is taken and is shot. And then threatening letters are sent around saying, if you don't stop helping the Nayland family with their harvest, we will. you'll end up the same way as Davlin Horse. Uh, Michael Nayland himself has to get an RIC escort to take him to Mass every Sunday. And on one stage, the RIC escort and Nayland are attacked with gunfire. And there's no indication that this is a formal IRA ambush. It is an attempt to assassinate Michael Nayland. And there's even, even after Francis Murphy is shot, I think he would be a distant cousin of of, of, of Francie Murphy. Uh, Patrick Curtin is going to end Steinman one day and he's pulled off his uh, horse and trap. He's effectively what we would say today. He's kneecapped. He's shot in both legs and his horse is shot dead. So the agrarian feud is very violent. Now, as to this being a reprisal for um, two RIC men being shot at 81 Cross, uh, that happens 10 days earlier. The British Crown Forces, um, first of all, in, in the summer of 1919, are not carrying out a lot of reprisal killings. And when they do start doing them in Clare, I know people say revenge is a, a dish best served cold, but the British aren't in the habit of waiting for 10 days. Also, the allegation is that the British Army carried out the shooting. Now, the British Army soldiers who would have been stationed in Ennistymon would all have been from Scottish regiments. They would not have known and would probably have cared even less about Irish men in the Royal Irish Constabulary uh, stationed locally. Remember, there's no black and tans or anything at this time. And the thing that has always um, stuck out to me is the lack of public commemoration of this. In the autumn of 1919, uh, you get these press reports in the Clare Champion and in the Saturday Record that money is being collected for a memorial to be put up to commemorate this Republican martyr, Francis Murphy. That memorial is never built, never appears. Where that money went, I don't know. There are no songs about him. Think everyone listening to this of your, your local area and if there's some Republican killed in 1916 or War of Independence, the GA Club is probably named after them. The local Sinn Féin Club will be named after them or the, the local Fianna Fáil coming. None of this happens. And even in 1924, Constance Markovich brings out a new a new edition of the Fianna Aaron handbook. And this lists all of the Fianna Aaron martyrs who have died for the Republican cause. And Francis Murphy is not listed in that. And even coming up to the, the centenary, the 100th anniversary in 2019, I understand there was a small private ceremony organised by members of the, the wider family. But there was no move to put up a memorial acknowledging him as a Republican martyr. And when I first began uh, researching my book, Blood and the Banner, about the history of the War of Independence and Clare back in the early 2000s, and I was asking people about this case and I was suggesting, God, why isn't there a plaque to this young fellow? He was only 15. He was killed by the British. And people kept saying to me, no, 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 it's more complicated than that. There was some local stuff going on as well. To me, it just doesn't compare to other British reprisal killings in Clare during the War of Independence. And I find myself in the very unusual position for me of having to defend members of the British Crown Forces and say, look, I genuinely don't think as a historian that they were involved in this murder. 
Were you surprised? Are you surprised at the level of the British Army investigation into this case as evidenced by the file in queue? Now, you know, OK, this is the middle of 1919. So the, the shooting war hasn't really, uh, hasn't really, really got going at this stage. But even so, the file that Michael is describing seems to be very, very extensive. Yeah, it's really surprising because if you go on to September of um, 1920s, just about a year after Francis Murphy is shot, you have, I think, six people killed as a reprisal for an IRA ambush on an RIC motor patrol at Rinne. And it's very scant details in that. They would just get a British officer to come in and go, we don't know who these strange men with British accents were who appeared in the area and murdered all these local civilians and Republican sympathisers. And their word was just taken for it. And that was that. And it's striking. Um, the, the Francis Murphy inquiry by the British is striking in that the efforts they went to to prove it wasn't them. The British, you know, their word was going to be taken in, you know, British run courts of law. They did not need to go to that extent in 1919, but they did. And to me, it seems to have been a genuine investigation to find out if any of their their troops had gone rogue. And again, at that stage in 1919, you're not getting mass shootings. You're not getting the kind of massacres we see later at Canada Cross in Milltown Malbay, or you're not getting kind of assassinations in people's homes. This really stands out as an unusual event. Michael, how has your own personal research gone down in family circles, the Vaughan family circles, the Murphy family circles? Yeah, well, I have to say that, that um, I'm a bit of a pariah when it comes to uh, matters of, of family history now like that. But, um, you know, I mean, the people who have considered the evidence I've given to them uh, have, have, have taken it uh, on the value that they've received it. But, but there are, there are quite, a, and I'll be quite honest, there are quite an amount of, of my family and on the Murphys and on the Garvey side who, who would dispute this. Uh, one one uh, anecdote that I, I gleaned from my, my, well, my brother gleaned from my father before he died was that there was a particular um, public house in Ennis Diamond where Andrew Murphy would never go to drink and um, he would not drink there because he said the people who came to murder Francie drank there before they arrived and he felt always that the, that the proprietors of the pub should have warned the family in advance that this was on the way. So, you know, it's a very nuanced part of history. You can understand, always understand, why public belief was that he was murdered by, by the British. But, you know, um, when you see and you know how, how deep agrarian disputes run, you can, I certainly can understand why this was, was portrayed in the manner it was. But the British Army seems to have in the background... Like, one of the interesting things was that they didn't actually publish their court of inquiry uh, in detail. In fact, they didn't. They were advised not to go ahead with a public inquiry. And, and as a matter of history, the inquest that was held for Francie uh, Murphy was one of the last inquests that were held because thereafter they became military tribunals because uh, the British were absolutely um, blindsided by the brevity of, of the inquest and the conclusion that it came to. Porik, you've looked at a couple of other killings that come up nationally that may also have been agrarian disputes but were blamed on the on the Crown forces. Tell us a little bit about those. 
Um, well, it, it's even it's, sometimes they're blamed on the Crown Forces, but even more often they can be blamed on the IRA. For example, um, I did my PhD thesis on the, the truce and the last killings in the last two or three days of the War of Independence. And you had two brothers, um, Thomas and Michael Waldron, at Loch Glynn in Roscommon. And on the 8th of July 1921, so the evening that the, the ceasefire has been announced but won't take effect for another two or three days, they're taken out of their home and they're both shot dead in their in their cabbage patch. And it's all it, when I started researching again, it seemed to me that, OK, it was put to me that this was the IRA shooting of, of two guys who were alleged to be spies and that the IRA are settling scores. But when I looked into it, it turned out that they had been shot with a shotgun. Now, the IRA, of course, did use shotguns, but all local farmers would have had them as well. And there was no mention of them being spies anywhere in the the veteran testimony of of IRA veterans or there was no mention of spies being executed at the time in IRA reports and then the more I looked into it it seemed to be that yes this was an agrarian killing and even there was a case in Kerry I came across um, in in Marie Coleman's research where a woman in Kerry had been uh, shot dead and her body was found near her home uh, the following morning and there was the, the typical placard on it saying spy executed by the IRA except it added three letters at the bottom R.I.P. Now, the IRA, if they executed someone as a spy, would not be inclined to write rest in peace on the bottom of the, the spy label. So that immediately got my, my antennae up. And when I started researching it again, it turned out that this was a murder as a result of a feud in the family. And a very convenient way of deflecting attention was to put a spy label on the, the body. And this even happens in later cases, there's a case in, in the Midlands, I think it's in Offaly, during the Civil War, when a guy is found shot dead on, on a roadside and on the back of literally a cigarette packet is written, spy shot by IRA. And it's six years later, one of his neighbours walks into a Garda station and says, that wasn't the IRA, that was me, I murdered him. We had been playing cards, we'd been drinking, he owed me money, we got into an argument, I shot him. And then I panicked, so I just wrote IRA in the back of my cigarette packet and I got away with it until now, but my conscience is at me. So it's very difficult sometimes in the War of Independence. You have two police forces effectively, neither of which are in complete control. You have the old Royal Irish Constabulary in, in rural Ireland, but you also have the new Irish Republican Police, which is a branch of the IRA. Neither is in complete control. And of course, you're going to have criminal elements who are going to commit theft and commit burglaries to make money out uh, out of the, the breakdown of law and order. But also, of course, you will have people who are involved in families that have very long running agrarian feuds and they go, there's a power vacuum here. Now is our chance to get that farm or to drive this family out. And it can be very confusing sometimes. And the local context is always very important. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us and for reassessing the killing on the 14th of August 1919 of 15-year-old Francis Murphy. My guests uh, are Dr. Porik Og O'Rourke and uh, relative of Francis Murphy, Michael Vaughan. Thank you both very much for joining us on The History Show this evening. Thank you, Miles. Margot. After the break, how comic books caused a moral panic in 1950s Ireland. Stay with us. The History Show with Miles Dungan on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. During the mid-1950s, a moral panic swept Ireland. It seemed, according to newspaper editorials, the sermons of Catholic priests and resolutions emanating from county councils, that the country was suffering through a crisis of juvenile delinquency, a crisis whose origins lay far beyond our shores. For many journalists, priests and politicians, the cause of the apparent crisis was comic books. 
specifically those imported from abroad, which were misleading the impressionable young people of Ireland. In this report, Ian Kennelly explores those events by focusing on one particular comic, The Leprechaun. In June 1953, reports appeared in the Irish Independent, advising readers of a new publication called The Leprechaun that would soon appear in newsagents around the country. The new comic was sponsored by the Society of St. Paul, an Italian religious order, which contemporary newspapers described as the largest publishing concern in Italy and whose main purpose, they wrote, was to make the best use of the press, radio, television and the cinema for the spread and protection of Christianity. It was for those reasons that the society, which is still operating today, was devoting resources to an Irish comic. The Leprechaun arrived at a time in which there was immense public controversy surrounding the importation of comics. Initially, that controversy focused on so-called horror comics, those which incorporated crime, violence and the supernatural. But it quickly expanded to include foreign comics in general. This, the 1950s, was a time when most comics on the newsagent shelves in Ireland were produced in Britain, although American comics also made their way into the country, much to the disgust of sections of Irish society. It was not unusual for regional newspapers to describe foreign comics as, and to quote, vile productions, foreign trash, pornographic, or just plain evil. A typical example can be found in a Longford Leader editorial from June 1954 that the so-called comics which are being imported into this country in tens of thousands are responsible to a certain extent for the high incidence of juvenile crime is an opinion that is fast gaining ground here. It is amazing the large numbers of Irish youth who read this kind of literature. These imported comics colourfully feature torture, persecution, oppression, murder and sex. They appeal to the baser instincts and to the morons who will be found in every community. Youths who devour them voraciously are bound to be swayed by the false glamour given to crime and gangsters. The latter are often portrayed as heroes and daredevils, and the stories are liberally sprinkled with corpses, maimings, shootings, and scantily dressed ladies. We cannot allow the minds of our youth to be corrupted and debased by this imported trash. In producing the Leprechaun, the Society of St. Paul was represented by Father Renato Simoni, an Italian priest who had come to Ireland in the late 1940s. Through the Leprechaun, Simone planned to offer Irish children and their parents an alternative to the foreign comics that were causing so much concern. Simone was working with Dean John Crow, a priest based in Adlone. While Simone was the organisational brains behind the new publication, it was Crow who became its public face. Crow could, perhaps euphemistically, be described as a businessman, his sermons were as likely to dwell on matters financial as they were matters spiritual, and he was constantly on the lookout to raise money for the church. Those fundraising efforts ranged from the local and charming, think bazaars and jumble sales, to the multi-continental and highly illegal, as in the case of his 1920s sweepstake that was condemned by the Irish government. The sweepstake, which was advertised worldwide, made sales in Europe, the USA, Asia and South America. Crow had tickets smuggled out of the country by using a publisher he knew in Dublin who posted the tickets posing as consignments of books. Crow eventually ended up in court because of the sweepstake, although the case fell apart soon after it emerged that the prosecuting counsel, future Taoiseach John A. Costello, and members of the government had purchased tickets in the sweepstake. Crow's Teflon-coated creativity and his vast array of contacts at home and abroad ensured a large audience for the new venture in Irish publishing. 
But first, and to learn more about Irish comic publishing at that time, I spoke to Mayo-based author David MacDonald, who has been collecting comics for over 30 years. Up to that point, there were Irish comics, but they were part of different publications. So there was a publication called Our Boys, which was published by the Christian Brothers in Dublin, which had ran for a long time, but it incorporated a small pullout called Chirnan Oak. They were distributed through the newsagents, but their main method of being distributed was through the Catholic schools. So they were distributed all throughout the country. So they had a nearly captive audience. Later on, with Folans, did something similar with uh, Shimsa, Sonus. They were again, they were monthly, but they were more nursery. They were more aimed at younger children. When launching The Leprechaun in 1953, Crow and Simone explained that the aim of the new comic was, as they put it, to provide clean, healthy entertainment for Irish children. Foreign comics, they declared, put too much stress on sex and gangsterdom. But what type of content and stories did the Leprechaun contain? David MacDonald describes a typical edition. I have it here in front of me. So it's 12 pages. It's got quite a lot of colour in it for, for the time. Most comics at the time would have been black and white or would have had just the front and back page in colour. So this issue has the Leprechaun title across the top, which is quite nicely drawn. And it's obviously in green because, you know, you're, you're trying to hit the home market. The front cover is Space Explorers. It's installment three. It's quite nicely drawn. It's actually drawn by a guy called Kurt Cesare. He's a German artist, but who worked predominantly, it seems, in the Italian market. So that space adventure runs from the front page and then continues on in the back page in colour. Science fiction stories were a staple of the Leprechaun. Those stories originated in Italian comics and were then republished in the Leprechaun, but the character names were changed to give them an Irish spin. Each edition, published every two weeks, contained at least one story printed in Irish. Printing of the Leprechaun took place in Dublin, although translations and editorial decisions were made in Italy and in Athlone, where the Society of St Paul maintained an office. Over time, as confirmed by David MacDonald, the comic included original strips from Irish artists, such as one depicting the events of 1798 in Wexford. The employment of Irish comic artists was unusual at the time, as David explains. The UK dominated the Irish market so much, and it still does to an extent. There is any amount of Irish creators and comics out there now that you can buy and read, which really, going back to the 50s and 60s, I think you could probably count on, on one hand the amount of creators from Ireland that worked in the comic industry. While the story of the Leprechaun could be seen as typical of 1950s Ireland, the concerns exemplified there were then prevalent in many countries, including the United States of America. In 1954, the United States Senate held hearings into what it called the comic book menace, while there were also tales of outraged parents burning stacks of comics. Britain was another place to feel the growing panic at the seemingly awesome threat posed by comics. There, the crisis had been intensifying since the 1940s, with a range of religious and public figures highlighting the dangers posed by foreign, which was to say, American comics. Those comics were accused of corrupting vulnerable children, even to the point of inciting violence. In Britain, the crisis culminated with the passage of legislation to keep certain comics out of the hands of children, but it also inspired an Anglican priest named Marcus Morris to provide a local alternative in the form of the Eagle. Founded in 1950, that comic, as explained by David MacDonald, provided a model and, perhaps, an inspiration for the Leprechaun. 
because of World War II and the amount of soldiers over in Britain, it had brought an influx of the word that's used a lot as lurid, that out of lurid publications from America. So comics, pulps, kind of that sensationalized crime and horror. And that was seen at the time as like corrupting the children of Britain. So the idea was to create a comic that was of a standard with wholesome content. And the, the comic was The Eagle. And it was a runaway success. It sold in the millions in England and it spawned the Dandere show on Radio Luxembourg. And the format was lavish. It was full colour. It was little printing. So you can see while the content and the format doesn't match the Eagle. The Eagle is the Rolls Royce of the 50s comics. You can see what they were aiming for with the Leprechaun. They were aiming to emulate the Eagle Throughout 1953 and 1954, there were regular reports and editorials in Irish regional newspapers praising the Leprechaun. And if we're to believe the Connacht Telegraph, the comic's influence reached all the way to the Vatican. In March 1955, the paper stated that His Holiness the Pope has approved of the Leprechaun as most suitable reading material for children. Although we can have reasonable doubts that the then Pope, Pius XII, gave any thought to the Leprechaun, he was familiar with and supportive of its publisher, the Society of St. Paul offering his public approval to the society in 1949. Yet his campaign against comics also met opposition. A counterpoint to those newspapers which fulminated about foreign trash can be found in an Irish press article in February 1954, during which the playwright Brian McMahon offered a defence of what he called this pictorial art. McMahon, already famous as a short story writer and novelist, was clearly familiar with the wider world of comic strips, name-checking various superheroes from Batman to Captain Marvel to Wonder Woman. Unqualified condemnation of the comics is as unwarranted as this wholesale condemnation of books, plays or films. Teachers who wish to see developed in children and love of reading are slow to condemn comics outright. They hope that these comics will lead to better things. People who, who crab at the violence of comics should read the classics for real violence. Julius Caesar is littered with dead and dying. Of course, we can point with pride to our own, the Leprechaun, and to the supplement, to our boys, which are now entrenched in the affections of the young. McMahon may have praised the Leprechaun, but his list of comic book heroes was populated for the most part by the stars of American imports, and his sentiments were likely shared by the majority of the comic-buying public in Ireland. By 1956, the energy that powered the moral panic of 1953 and 1954 had dissipated, the Leprechaun was still being published, but it no longer garnered much media attention. Contemporary reports suggest that sales were declining, a decline that was perhaps worsened by the death of Dean John Crow in 1955. It seems, based on the collection of the Leprechaun held in the National Library, that the comic ceased publishing in late summer 1956, leaving little trace of its existence. Ultimately, the Leprechaun was, despite the misguided ambitions of its publisher to counter supposedly malevolent imports, an unusual and brave attempt to create an Irish periodical comic, an attempt that provides a glimpse of culture and society in 1950s Ireland. That was Ian Kennelly reporting from Mayo, where he met comic collector and author David MacDonald to discuss The Leprechaun, a comic produced in Ireland during the mid-1950s as part of a campaign to protect Irish children from foreign influences. And staying with the arts, we'll be talking about the stained glass artistry of Harry Clark after this short break. The History Show with Maz Dungan on RTE Radio 1. 
Welcome back. In the mid-1920s, the Irish government approached Irish artist Harry Clark and asked if he would be interested in designing a stained-glass window for the International Labour Court in Geneva. The resulting work subsequently made an unlikely journey across the Atlantic and is now located in Miami, Florida. To talk about how and why this happened, I'm joined by Zoe Reid, Keeper of Public Services and Collections with the National Archives. Zoe, tell us first of all, who was Harry Clark? So Harry Clark was a Dublin-born artist who was renowned for both his book illustration but also his work in stained glass. Um, And he was working at the turn of the 20th century and he did immaculate and intricate work in stained glass. There was nothing else like him in terms of the work that he produced mainly for commissions, mainly for churches. And we'll see a lot of his work around Ireland in various churches. Um, something, a good thing to set yourself a challenge to go around and He find was kind him. of reproducing Aubrey Beardsley in stained glass, wasn't he, to some he, extent? He was, and he was very influenced by Beardsley and he was in, influenced by um, that Art Nouveau movement at the time. And you see that very much more so in his book illustrations as well. And he illustrated for Wilde as well. But you will see that intricate kind of, but also that sinister and darkness as well Mm. to some of the work. What was this commission all about to create a window which would be installed in Geneva? So an organisation called the International Labour Office was given space. It was established as part of the League of Nations and it was given space to have their offices in the same place. A call went out to all the nations that were involved in the League of Nations to decorate the offices and a gift had to be given by the Irish nation to um, the ILO. Ireland decided Cosgrave was actually a very good friend of Harry Clark's. He'd opened an exhibition for him in 1925 and he suggested the commission of the window. Clark came back and said, OK, we'll do a window. We'll look at 15 Irish writers and we'll illustrate their work through an intricate panelled stained glass window. And that's what the proposal was. And that was agreed. And that's what he did. And the artists included James Joyce, Sean O'Casey, Liam O'Flaherty, Patrick Pierce, Lennox Robinson, Yeats, John Milton Singh. They were all included in different vignettes. And so characters from either a publication or a, a play were illustrated. By yes. Clark. Interesting, because some of the names that you mentioned wouldn't necessarily sit all that well together. Mm. Pierce and Joyce in the same window, an interesting one. Um, Clark himself, uh, for sad reasons, knew Switzerland quite well. He did towards the end of his life, yes. And that's also what makes this story quite so poignant because he was commissioned in 27 to do the the window. He worked on it and the wrangling with the Irish government really started in 29. The window was completed and finished. He presented it to them and whilst Cosgrave could see the artistic benefit of it and thoroughly loved it, there were panels where they just weren't comfortable with how Ireland and Irish people were being depicted. For example, there's in Sean O'Casey, there's the scene of Juno from Juno and the Peacock. He's got a bottle of Guinness in his pocket. He's, you know, potentially he's drunk. So that idea of the Irish drunkard, there's references or there's lightly clothed women where there's that sense of nudity. And again, that's not seen to be something that the Irish government feel they're very comfortable with that going forward. But uh, so this is pietistic and censorious Ireland in the 1920s showing its teeth. It really is. It's the beginning of that. If you think about censorship for film has happened from the 1923, 1929, we're hitting the censorship on publications as well. And of course, Liam O'Flaherty's in there. His, the scene that's depicted is from uh, Mr. Gahuli, 
But O'Flaherty was the first author to have his work censored by the state with the, the banning of the Gold House in 1929. So is he paid off and is the window then just put into storage? What happens? Well, there's correspondence that we've got, which is actually, and this is the poignant thing, is there's correspondence from Clark sort of saying, I can change a couple of the panels if you're not happy, but you've got to let me know what to do and what way, what way to proceed with it. The last correspondence is from December in 1930, where he's writing to Cosgrave saying, tell me what to do. You know, I can change a couple of panels, but you need to let me know which direction you'd like me to take. And can you write back to me? Because I'm just about to head off to the sanatorium in Switzerland. And as we know, he passed away on the 6th of January, 1931. But the government, or certainly W.T. Cosgrave, must have known what they were possibly going to get from somebody who was as very obviously risque as Harry Clark. Did they assume that he would rein in uh, his imagination, if you like, because he was doing a piece of official art? I think perhaps they might have. I think they might have. They might have understood what he, he potentially could have presented, but then it was that idea of this was going to represent Ireland. This wasn't being seen in Ireland alone. This was being seen on the international So pull on puppet. the green jersey, Harry. That's really what they were saying. Effectively. Unfortunately, I think they were, definitely. Uh, which he failed miserably to do, um, thankfully. But uh, so, I mean, he produced a, an absolutely fabulous work. What has been the subsequent history then of that uh, piece of art? It languished in government buildings for a period of time. People did get to see it and look at it. And then it was actually sold back to his wife, Margaret Clark. He was commissioned, I think it was £350 at the time to do the window. She subsequently bought it back in the 1950s. They had it in the Clark Studios on South Frederick Street for a number of years. And then it was sold on to a a museum in, in America in the 1990s. Where is it now and can it be seen? Can oh, can, of course. It's in the Wilsonian Museum in Miami in Florida. So if we want to get ourselves to Florida, we can see it. And actually, they've been in touch with us as well um, in the course of us working on this exhibition. And they're doing a restyling and refreshing of how they display um, the window as well. And presume that they have no intention of selling it back to us. I don't think anybody's asked yet. <laughs> Maybe they should. Zoe Reid, thank you very, very much indeed. <laughs> And that was Zoe Reid of the National Archives on Harry Clark's Geneva Window. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme and indeed all we've time for on this series of The History Show. We'll be back in February with another run of episodes. In the meantime, details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath and Jamie Doyle on sound and our researcher Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.